First Peter chapter three, verses eighteen through twenty-two. First Peter chapter three, beginning in verse eighteen. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. This is the word of the living God, and we say thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray. Almighty God, your word is clean, it is pure, it is good for us, it is our food, and we pray that today, by your Spirit, its preaching would be the voice of Christ made clear to his sheep. We pray that you might help us to hear and help us to preach. We ask these things for your glory and for the good of all your people, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Martin Luther once wrote these words about this passage that we're looking at today. Quote, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. End quote. (laughs) The great reformer admitting that this is a challenging text. Now, challenging texts aren't a problem for believers Because we confess that the word of Christ is clear in all that it speaks regarding the gospel and that there are some sections that perhaps are more clear, more explicitly on the surface clear about the saving work of Christ so that no person could read the word and say this isn't clear about the way of salvation, but that there are other passages which are challenging For instance, in our text this morning, what is meant by Jesus preaching to spirits in prison? What is meant by the days of Noah in our text? And perhaps many of you might wonder this question. What is meant by the phrase baptism now saves you? This text, while seemingly confusing, is actually a bold declaration of the victory of Christ. And that's a word that I want to leave you with today. Victory. The victory of Christ. This text is a bold declaration of Christ's victory and thus of our hope in the midst of suffering. Flowing out of the previous section that we've been looking at, just section by section, week by week. The previous section was on how to prepare for suffering as believers. What does it look like to prepare for suffering that may come because you name the name of Christ? The context is twofold in our text. Jesus also suffered and was ultimately victorious. And so shall we be. Jesus also suffered. You aren't the only one to suffer for righteousness. Jesus also suffered, and he was victorious. 
And you in him, united to him by faith, will be victorious as well. When the pains of suffering come, remember the chief example where victory is found. Christ suffered once and was raised victorious. This text could be perhaps defined in the following way. It's victory after suffering. Victory after suffering. Notice the first phrase, for Christ also suffered. Now we'll get to what the text says as to the reason why he suffered for sins. But notice that word also. This is important. This isn't an isolated text about Noah or about baptism. This flows right out of the previous text. You should prepare to suffer for Christ. And notice verse 18. The one for whom you suffer also suffered. Christ also suffered. So Jesus, in a sense, is given as an example to believers. That's what this text is about. Christ also suffered. The Puritan Matthew Poole, writing on this text, says this, quote, And this shows as the perfection of Christ's sufferings, in that they needed not be repeated. So our conformity to him in deliverance from ours, our suffering. That as Christ underwent death, the principal part of his sufferings, not often, but once only, and then his glory followed. So likewise, if in this life we suffer for righteousness sake, according to Christ's example, there remains no more suffering for us, but we shall be glorified with him. You see, you can't look at this passage in isolation from the rest of the text. Prepare to suffer. Today, Christ also suffered. And he has won victory through suffering. So then let's look at this victory of Christ after suffering. Boys and girls, if you're taking notes this morning, I'm going to have three points Some of these points might be more clear about Jesus' victory, his winning through suffering, and some of them may be less clear. They may be questions that you ask mom and dad about later today or this week, but all of them have this idea in view. Christ is victorious. He suffered, and he was victorious. So let's look then at these three ideas in 1 Peter 3, 18-22. The first is this. Victory through suffering. Victory through suffering. Again, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Notice the text tells us. It tells you, friend, if you're here today and you've heard about Jesus suffering, it tells you why Jesus suffered. He suffered once for sins. He didn't suffer just for a cause. He didn't suffer to simply be shown as a victim. He suffered for sins. And notice what the text says. He suffered for sins once. Once. His suffering for sin occurred one time. And only one time. And notice what the next phrase says. The just For the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Let's look at each of these phrases. He suffered for sins. You need to hear this today. Jesus' death on the cross was a payment for sin. Every human being that's ever been born after the fall of Adam and Eve is born a sinner. 
That's their nature. They're bent against God. Even their best deeds have this bent of rebellion in it. And in this nature, they commit their own sins. They break the very commandments that our brother just read a few moments ago. They don't honor God nor love him. And they don't honor their neighbor or love him or her. They're sinners and they have a fist raised at God. But God, who is rich in mercy, sent his son to die in the place of sinners. To die for sins. That as Jesus hung on the cross and experienced agonies in both body and soul, the judgment of God for the sins of all the people who would ever trust in him, that judgment was poured out on Christ. And Christ died for sins. Particular sins. Maybe you woke up this morning and you thought, I'm going to church. And the thought of a sin this past week came and it it got in the way of your praying that the Lord would speak to your heart this morning. That sin, believer, is a sin for which Christ died. He died for sins. But notice the text says he died once for sins. This echoes the writer or preacher, rather, of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9. Listen to what he says. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often. As the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Peter says he died for sins and he died once, which means his work is finished. There is no ongoing need for someone to pay for sins. Christ has done it and he offers it to all who have ears to hear. My work is sufficient to pay for all of your sins. And notice this idea of substitution. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just, boys and girls, the one without sin, the one who was righteous, The one who lacked nothing, the one who could stand as a man in God's presence forever. The just for the unjust. That's you and me. We are the unjust. Let no one deny the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. He substituted himself, the just, for the unjust. But notice we're also given a purpose clause. That he might bring us to God. When Christ was on the cross, the souls of all who would ever be saved were represented there. And his purpose was the glory of God and the bringing of sinners back to God. Before you were even born, Christian, Christ suffered once the just for you, the unjust, that he might bring you to God. This is victory through suffering. Yes, the text says Jesus also suffered, but we're told why. If there's any confusion as to why Jesus died, it is laid out in this one verse. He died for sins of the unjust, the sinners, that he might bring them to God. Is there not glorious hope in this reality, Christian? This is your Savior. He died for a particular people. He died for you, Christian. 
He died for your sins. This is victory through suffering. His suffering accomplished victory. But there's a second theme in our text related to victory this morning, and that is victory proclaimed after suffering. Victory proclaimed after suffering. Look what the text says. Verse 18, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Now that phrase there, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, is an interesting one. You know how language works. Every language is different. No matter what version of the English Bible you're using today, they had to make two calls. This was originally written in Greek. They had to make two calls. How do we translate this? What's the sense? Don't we thank God for Bible translators? That plowboys all the way up to deep scholars can read the word of Christ in their own language. But translators have to make a call. The first call is this. Notice the phrase says this. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Both could be in or both could be by. You have to make a decision. A construction could be translated either way. But the second is that word spirit. Do you know that the Greek word for spirit and the Greek word often used for Holy Spirit is the same word? And that every time that word is used in your Bible, the Bible translator has to make a call. Is this the Holy Spirit or is this the spirit of the person being spoken of, the soul? So our text is a challenging one to translate. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the spirit. I would suggest that perhaps an even crisper translation would be this. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. By which also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Thus, what is being spoken of here is the soul of Christ, the human soul of Christ, not the Holy Spirit. But then, even if we make that call, what are we to do by this next phrase in verse 19? By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. And then we're given a description of these spirits in verse 20, who were formerly disobedient when once the divine suffering waited in the days of Noah. (laughs) Well, if you survey church history and scholars, you will find at least five, if not seven or eight options for how to interpret 1 Peter 3, verse 19 and 20. Let me just list a few for you. Could be that what is referenced here is that Christ, in the days of Noah by the Holy Spirit, preached. Because Noah was a preacher, wasn't he? He preached for week in and week out as the ark was being constructed. He preached of the righteousness of God and the people would not heed it. Some think what is referenced here is that Christ, in the days of Noah, went and preached by the Spirit. A second option is this, that Christ died in the flesh, But in his soul, his spirit, he went to the place of the dead and between his death and resurrection and that he preached victory to the demonic spirits. Third option, Christ proclaimed victory to those who rejected the word of the gospel in Noah's day. Somehow he went to the place of the dead and proclaimed the gospel 
to those who somehow in Noah's day had rejected it. Here's another. Christ preached to spirits sometime between his resurrection and ascension. You could read it that way. But hey, after he was raised, but before his ascension, there was some kind of proclamation to spirits. Here's a fifth option. Christ's resurrection and ascension is a proclamation of victory to all the fallen angelic forces. There's not a demon in the world that doesn't know that Jesus is king. And then if you really dive into the literature, it seems like Peter is using a a book that was present during his day known as First Enoch and that he has some connection to that. Or maybe he has in mind angels involved in Genesis 6. You, You see where this goes. This seems confusing, doesn't it? But let's look on the surface. Being put to death in the flesh, in the body, but made alive in his spirit by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient. I think the best interpretation of this passage, this is a call you have to make. It's not really related to our confession of faith. It's not a position that every single believer has to take for very few throughout church history, at least since the Reformation, have been uniform in their view. But I think the best interpretation of this passage is the idea that Christ physically died. And in between his death and resurrection, he, in his spirit, descended to the place of the dead to proclaim victory over sin and death. Now, why do I say that? I hope you're wearing your seatbelt this morning, beloved. Well, number one, it makes the most sense of the text before us. I think, again, the best translation would be something like this, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive In the spirit by which also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. In other words, Jesus, like every other human being before him who had ever died, had a physical body that died, but had a soul that went, as the Old Testament says, to the place of the dead, to Sheol. The New Testament translates that word as Hades. And notice in our text that in verse 18, there's proclamation to spirits, which often mean demonic forces. And at the very end of our text, what is there? A clear victory over who? Spirits. Notice there in verse 22, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Angels, authorities, and powers, what? Having been made subject to him. The passage itself. Seems to help us. But in addition to this, it would seem strange if Peter, who's talking about Jesus' suffering, then his death, then his resurrection, and then ultimately his ascension, would take a moment and do a flashback all the way to Noah's day. Time-wise, it would be strange to go back to the pre-incarnate state of Jesus, given the movement of this passage. But in our text, I think this... Interpretation also makes the most sense of Jesus' victory. The victory being spoken of here is the victory accomplished after suffering, which is the hope for all of us as we suffer. So it makes the most sense of the text, but also it makes the most sense of broader biblical teaching. Let's work outward for a moment. Peter is our writer, isn't he? Has Peter ever spoken in this way before? Well, he has. Remember that proclamation 
all the way back in Acts chapter 2. You can turn there with me. There are several famous sermons in the Bible. Peter has one of those famous sermons on the day of Pentecost. And in Acts chapter 2, he says this in verse 25 and following. For David says concerning him, that is Jesus, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, or as the Hebrew would render it, Sheol. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now this is David writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaking about Jesus. And what does he say? The Jesus who will come and be the Redeemer of his people will have a body that will not decay and have a soul that what? Will not be left in the place of the dead. And this is wonderful hope for each of us. Because unless the Lord Jesus returns, believer, you will die. And your physical body will be placed in the ground. And your soul, separated from your body, will go to the place of believers now who are dead in Christ. But guess what? Everywhere you go, you will not go anywhere that King Jesus hasn't gone first. Now Peter... The one who writes our text quotes from Psalm 16, verse 10, where he says, the coming Messiah, his body's not going to see corruption. Why? Because he's going to be raised on the third day. But his soul will not be left in the place of the dead. But Peter writes about this elsewhere. One more place. Second Peter. Second Peter chapter two, which is very helpful for us. Second Peter chapter two and verse four. Notice a repeated pattern that Peter has. He's talking now in this letter about false teachers. First Peter, second Peter two, four. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. And then notice this and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah. One of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing a flood on the world of the ungodly. Now, what I want you to notice is that word hell. We don't often do this. But that word hell, for those of you using the New King James Version, you have a footnote. That word hell is actually a Greek word, Tartarus. What is Tartarus? That's that's the word in the Greek. It's translated in English as hell. What is Tartarus? Well, in Greek mythology, mythology that Peter would have been aware of, Hades was the place of the dead. And Tartarus was the deepest place of it where the Titans were imprisoned. Now, boys and girls, that's just fable. Just like another Disney movie. It might be interesting to talk about, but it's not real. It's not true. Peter, aware of this, is using words that had meaning. It was the place of the dead, but Tartarus was the deepest place, the darkest place. Elsewhere in the Bible, you have words like abyss or the pit. Second Peter uses this word in verb form to describe angelic spirits. They were tartarized, it literally reads. What does that mean? There were spirits that were sent to the deepest abyss of the earth. 
So Peter himself has a theology of a place, the dead, and even a place that is the deepest place, the darkest place. Now, let me just interrupt all of this discussion to say this. I think what this text is telling us is that Jesus's victory accomplished through suffering, finished on the cross. Jesus didn't descend anywhere to suffer more. This doesn't have anything to do with purgatory or giving people a second chance. Jesus finished his suffering and he died in his spirit. His soul went to the place, the abode of the dead, but he went all the way to the furthest abyss to do one thing, make proclamation of his victory. Which helps us, doesn't it? You and I quote it often. Perhaps it's sent to you on a greeting card. But have you ever thought about this phrase? Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. And where are they bowing? (laughs) Those in heaven, the highest of heights. Those on the earth. And where else? Those on the earth. There is not a demon anywhere that will not bow to King Jesus. So Peter himself has a theology. We won't look at these, but elsewhere in the scripture, Jude chapter 1, verse 6. Or Luke chapter 8. Quickly, we've got to turn to Luke. Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, verses 30 and 31, we read these words. Jesus, in the midst of healing, says this. Jesus asked him, saying, what is your name, demon? I don't want to preach a sermon on Luke 8, but Jesus owns him by saying, you tell me your name. What is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. And they, that is many demons, boys and girls, begged him that he would not command them to go where? To the abyss, to the pit, to Tartarus. We could spend all afternoon talking about verses that have this theology of the highest of heights, the earth, and the the depths of the earth. Think about Revelation 20, verse 3, which speaks to Satan being prisoned in an abyss. So this interpretation makes the most sense of the text, beloved. It it makes the most sense of the broader teaching of Scripture, both Peter and other authors. But as you survey church history before the Reformation, the dominant and in some sense almost singular view was that Christ died and in his soul descended to the dead. Our brothers like Ignatius and Polycarp and Justin and Irenaeus and Tertullian and Augustine and Cyril believed this. Augustine says this, quote, It is established beyond question that the Lord, after he had been put to death in the flesh, descended into hell. This is ultimately how it became enshrined in our creedal statement. He descended to hell. We ought probably to say he descended to the dead. Because up until the time of the Reformation, the Latin word that we now use for the word hell just meant dead, the abode of the dead. 
But it got a little muddled during the Reformation, in my opinion. And actually, during the Reformation, many of the Reformers rightly wanted to push back against the false teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. And so you had other wonderful brothers like John Calvin and others saying, we've got to be careful saying that there was more suffering for Jesus to do or, or some other matter of false idea. It was never that Jesus went there to suffer because he didn't go to hell, the place of the damned. He went to the abode of the dead to proclaim liberty, and he went to the deepest, darkest place, the place of spirits who were disobedient in Noah's day. In essence, then, Christ died, yes, but his victory extended over even the greatest of his enemies, the abode of Satan. Reformed Baptist Samuel Renahan writes these words, quote, By appearing in the abyss and declaring his victory, Jesus caused every demon to know that their efforts we're all in vain. And if we had time, we would talk about how this text connects to the binding of the strong, strong man in Mark chapter 3, verses 22 to 30, where Jesus talks about plundering the strong man. Satan. Jesus' binding of Satan in Revelation 20. Suffice it to say, however you take this passage, it has to do with the victory of Christ. I just want to press us to see that the victory of Christ wasn't just an earthly victory for everyone to see, but even the demons of the abyss saw King Jesus proclaim, I have died for sinners. The curse will be done away with. You have failed. By whom, verse 19, also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. These spirits in prison were disobedient in a very crucial time in the movement of the Bible, weren't they? They were disobedient before the world was destroyed. That's important as we get to our third point. The days of Noah, when the text says that God's patience was suffering long. The day when judgment was for sin was about to come upon the earth. And only eight were saved through the waters of the flood. This ought to ring in our ears when we talk about baptism in a moment. But there is a flood of God's wrath that is about to come, but he brings us through the water. They were spirits who scoffed and caused men and women to scoff in the days of Noah. Michaels, in his commentary, writes these words, quote, the disobedient spirits of long ago still exist. And it is not unlikely that Peter sees their influence behind the ridicule and slander of pagans actively opposed to the Christian movement in his day. If Christ had visited the spirits, violated their sanctuaries and brought them under subjection, then Christians have nothing to fear from the interrogation and insults of those who denounce their way of life, end quote. This is why I think it makes the most sense in the context. What is the context? You will suffer for Jesus. If you name his name, they will come after you, and some of them will be influenced by demons, and they will call you the most horrible names, and they will say that you are evil. But don't fear them, because even the deepest abyss knows of the victory of Christ. Ultimately, beloved, whatever view you take, this is about the victory of Christ and how to apply that in suffering. So victory 
through suffering and victory proclaimed after suffering. And if you're thinking, you said a lot, remind me what you think. This text is encouraging me to see that Jesus' body was crushed, that he died, and that he, like every other human being, had a soul, still does, a human soul, and that for three days his soul went to the place of the dead. But he descended to the deepest of the abyss to preach liberty, not only to the captives, but to demonic forces. That his victory would be clear from the deepest of places all the way up to the earth, all the way up to the very right hand of the majesty on high. Really, beloved, what is the movement of Christ? He is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God enthroned on high, who put on flesh and came down to earth, who lived a perfect life and died on the cross and by his death went down even to the very depths of the pit that we all pray he'll save us from. His victory was announced there and then he was raised from the dead back to the earth. And what does our text say? He ascended. Well, quickly then, third point, and that is victory marked by water. What a blessed providence that we had baptism today. Henry and I didn't plan that. But baptism in this text is encouraging, but it's really victory marked by water. What does the text say next? These spirits in prison were formerly disobedient, and they were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. And now we're taken back to the days of Noah, not so much to consider this idea of Jesus' descent, but what is brought up here, the flood. While the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water, there is an antitype which now saves us. Baptism. In the Bible, a type and an antitype are often used. A type is like a shadow, if you will, something in the Old Testament, which is a shadow that points to something in the New Testament or something that is to come that is the substance. So one example would be the Passover lamb in Exodus. It was like a type. And Christ is the antitype. He's the ultimate. He's the true. He's the better. He's the fullest lamb of God. Well, here, Peter's doing that with water. Notice the text says in verse 21 that they were brought through water. And the text says that the flood was a type of baptism. Now, what happened in the flood, boys and girls? Most of you know this. The flood waters came from under the earth and from above the earth. And God preached through Noah, repent of your sins and get onto the ark. What happened? No one believed. And the floodwaters brought judgment upon all but eight. And the eight were brought through the waters of judgment. And the waters of baptism were a declaration in Noah's day of judgment on sin And today, the waters of baptism, if you will, are a a declaration of judgment on sin. And through Christ's resurrection, we are brought through it. Notice this passage says, 
Baptism now saves us. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus. Two important notes on that phrase. Peter is quick to say that it's not the act of baptism that saves you. Notice what he says there. Hey, when you are lowered into the water, we just saw one of our brothers being lowered into the water. That water didn't remove the filth of his flesh. Well, yes, the dirt, but flesh in the Bible talks about is, is a picture of sin. That water didn't wash away sins. That's what Peter says. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus. May every single person in this room understand that what saves you is the resurrection of Christ. It's Jesus. It's not the act of baptism. Literally. That's important. It's not the act that purifies or washes away your sins. The text says, but it's an answer of a good conscience. What does that mean? Well, baptism is the official marking of a believer who is making an appeal to God. You have revealed to me, living God, that I'm a sinner. You have made plain to me that Christ is the only way to be forgiven for sins, that he was raised. I'm coming to you, proclaiming for all to see in the waters of baptism, appealing, appealing to you in the waters of baptism. Baptism is pictured as a coming to God. But notice, Peter makes clear, it's not the act of baptism, the removal of filth from the flesh, but it's, quote, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the means of salvation. The world will be judged soon, just like it was judged in Noah's day, and the waters of God's wrath will be poured out on all who've rejected the Son. But we, Christians... We will be brought through that water of judgment by the resurrection of Christ. And every time a sinner is plunged into the waters of baptism and raised symbolically to walk in newness of life, that is a picture that Christ is victorious and united to him, we will be brought safely through the flood of God's wrath by Jesus' blood and righteousness. Christ's resurrection occurs. We're marked for it in waters of baptism, and we look to a future resurrection. A couple of brothers commenting on this passage. First, an Anglican brother, Alistair Roberts, says this. The waters of the flood drown the old world and the enemies of the people of God. And the waters of baptism symbolically drown the old world and all the devils that pursue us. End quote. A Baptist brother, Thomas Schreiner. The waters of baptism, like the waters of the flood, demonstrate that destruction is at hand. But believers are rescued from these waters in that they are baptized with Christ, who has also emerged from the waters of death through his resurrection. Just as Noah was delivered through the stormy waters of the flood, believers have been saved through the stormy waters of baptism by virtue of Christ's triumph over death. So what of baptism saves? Well, it saves in the same way that the floodwaters saved Noah. God did all the work and connected Noah to that work through faith. And God demonstrated this salvation for all to see through water. 
Otherwise, we're left with the interpretation of this passage that the act that I do when a sinner is lowered into the water is the ground of their salvation. But it is not. There is no act that I can do that will save a sinner. There's no act that I can do, no minister or priest can do that will save a sinner. It's what Christ has done. And he unites people all across this globe to that work by faith. And then he makes a bold sign of that salvation in the waters of baptism. On April 29th of this year, just several weeks ago, hundreds of American citizens fled from Sudan. We ought to be praying for Sudan. I believe our brother did last week or the week before. There's trouble there once again. But hundreds of American citizens, passport in hand, fled from Sudan. And I can just imagine as they come home, some one of them is going to say, that passport saved me. I'm glad that I had that mark of belonging to a kingdom called America. Well, the passport didn't save them. No, it was the helicopter or the plane or the the governor intervention that saved them. It's their belonging to this country that saved them. They got out of the destruction. But they may say, I'm glad that passport saved me. You and I wouldn't interpret that as well. I guess the passport lifted you up out of destruction and set your feet on a higher plane. It's a mark of where you belong. Well, Peter finishes, and so shall we, with the final verse. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. We move back to victory, don't we? Jesus, the one who came and lived a perfect life and died, who descended, has been raised and now has ascended. And he's gone into heaven to the right hand of God. There is no higher position of authority. And notice, once again, who Peter reminds his readers Jesus has authority over. Every last angel, every last spirit being, every last principality and power. You ever wonder if reformed people consider spiritual warfare? We ought to. Peter did. But spiritual warfare ought to always be held with this in view. We're not fighting to win. The king has already won. Angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. So notice that if our interpretation of this passage is indeed accurate, and I believe it is, Jesus' victory is one that involved a descent and an ascent. The ascended one on high, which our brother Blake preached on several months back when he walked us through the doctrine of the ascension and its importance. The the ascended one on high, proclaimed as victorious, is the one who descended to proclaim victory. What evil demonic force will you be afraid of or fear in your temporary suffering believer when King Jesus has already gone there to make plain that he rules? That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth.
Let's pray. Living God, as we consider the victory of Christ and the challenging turns of this text, help us not to lose sight. Wherever we land in the intricacies of this passage, help us not to lose sight of the victory of Christ, a victory won through suffering, a victory proclaimed after his suffering, and a victory that is marked every time one of us is plunged into the waters of baptism. You have gathered your people into the ark of the church, O living Christ, and you are bringing them through the waters safely home. Help us, we pray, to be encouraged in our suffering. In Jesus' name, amen.